Good evening. It's a privilege and a joy to be able to uh, be with you all uh, this evening to uh, worship together with you. Uh, I can think of few things that would be uh, as good for a preacher's heart before he brings the word uh, than to be sung at uh, by a congregation that Jesus is better. Um, He is, and I pray that um, this message would be the capstone to that song in our hearts, that we would acknowledge him as he is, as Lord of all. Will you bow your heads uh, with me in prayer? God, we need you tonight. May you, by your grace, through your spirit, uh, open our hearts, our minds, to receive the word meekly, able um, to listen well, And I pray that as we do so, that you would uh, transform the way that we think, the way that we believe, and that we would go from this place ready to obey what we have learned here tonight. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to start this evening just by asking a, a question of you. You don't have to answer, of course, but it's a maybe a personal probing question in a sense, and that is that Do you ever feel a sense that life is just heavy or overwhelming, that the weight of all that you have on your plate is just too much to bear, too much to carry? Do you ever sense that those cares and and, uh, things that you have to be concerned about lead you to worry and anxiety to distraction. I think that we would all agree that there's, there's much around us in our world that, that leads us to worry, to anxiety, to distraction. We turn on the news and we see uh, a global uh, uproar politically. Things are happening almost moment by moment that are beyond our control, beyond our understanding. We see uh, the economy changing and it affecting us. But we see this uncertainty even in our own lives, our, our families, stresses with, with in-laws, with children, with schools. We see our bank accounts trickling downward more, more than they were last week. Our career may not be as, as guaranteed as it once was. A promotion that we had our hopes set on doesn't quite seem to be in the works, or maybe our futures, our, our our future, or our future hope for our children, isn't quite what we thought it was going to be. And I think that we would agree that our our natural reaction in the face of things seemingly spinning out of control is to grab at something, anything that will help us feel more in control of our lives, of our destiny, over the things that concern us. I think it's natural to want to guarantee security, prosperity, safety for ourselves and those we love. It's a natural thing for us. We recognize that. However, we must ask ourselves, if these desperate reachings out to gain control are most, or as they often are, the acting out of hearts consumed by, by fear, by doubt, by unbelief, 
hearts that doubt the goodness of God even towards us, his children, that doubt his promises to us. And if that is the case, is that the way for us? Is that the way for us as God's children, disciples of Christ, to think, to live, to react to the world around us? Tonight, I think that we will see from God's word that the answer to those questions is a resounding no. There is, that is not the way. And in fact, God informs us that there is a better way. A way of obedience and faith. The better way rescues us from the bondage and the sin of worry and self-dependency and establishes us firmly, safely, in the freedom of faith in the God who provides and meets our needs. Turn with, turn with me in your copies of God's word to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. As you turn there, I just want to kind of introduce us to this book a little bit. The Gospel of Matthew, which is his spirit-inspired written record of the life of Jesus, will help us tonight to, to understand what is this better way. We might step aside for a moment and, and remind ourselves that really the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is a better way. That the gospel is concerned with transforming us from the natural to the supernatural, from the sinful to the righteous, from a self-dependent, me-affirming way of life to that which is Christ-dependent, God-exalting. That's the better way. And Matthew's gospel written early in the history of the church to believers, provides a foundation for this better way through the teachings of Christ himself. Matthew's gospel centers around five main parts, each um, containing a sermon or a discourse of, Matthew's, or of Christ's teaching. And in perhaps his most familiar, the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus speaks for an extended time on the way that kingdom citizens, those who are his disciples through repentance and faith, are to live the better way. Christ begins his teaching with the, the familiar Beatitudes and then uh, moves through uh, by structuring uh, his teaching around these contrasts between the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, and he contrasts it with true godliness. He says often, you have heard, but then I say to you. In chapter 6, he, he moves through the different spheres or areas of life. And he says, when you do this, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, do it in this way as my disciple. And when he finishes this sermon, the crowds are in awe at this man's authority and power in this teaching. The Sermon on the Mount speaks to many areas of our lives. And Jesus shows us that to be his disciple, to be a follower of Christ, is to have such a changed heart that all areas of our lives are truly changed and made transformed. In Matthew chapter 6, 
in verses 19 through 24, uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples about the issues of wealth and material prosperity, verses that are very familiar to us. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in verse 24, he, he issues this definitive prohibition to his disciples when he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It is not a possibility for a disciple of Christ to have dual masters, God and money, God and wealth. And it's from this statement that Jesus moves in the verse, into the verses where we'll be this evening, verses 25 through 34. He moves to a broader teaching for his disciples and shows us through three identical repeated commands in this section that not only should disciples not be distractedly devoted to material and physical wealth, but neither should they be anxious or worried about even their most basic needs for life. Let's look at the first of these three commands in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus says, therefore, referring back to verse 24, since money is not the object of our devotion, material wealth is not our Lord, Therefore, since this is the truth for a disciple of Christ, do not be a command for us to be or for us to obey. No options here. Do not be, Christ says, anxious, worried, concerned, distracted. And in the latter or the middle part of this verse, he says, Don't be anxious about these things. Two categories. Your life. What she says is made up of, of worry about that which we will eat or what we will drink. In the second category, your body, what we'll put on. So you see the, the idea there. Christ is saying, don't be worried about what you're putting into your body and don't be worried about what you're putting on your body. And it seems like Christ is almost sensing the, the temptation that we as his disciples might have, and that is to question, well, Jesus is forbidding me from serving money and, and gaining rusty treasure. But surely he must know and understand that I need to eat. I need to put clothes on. Surely Christ would be okay with me being concerned about those things. And to answer such temptations, Jesus asks this simple question at the end of the verse. We just read it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So with the answer to this question, as an implied, albeit perhaps on our part, a tentative 
Yes, okay, Jesus, we can acknowledge that that's probably true. There's probably more to life than food and more to the body than clothing. But with this question, Christ is intending to help us look beyond even our most basic needs to something greater that he wants to do, something greater than he wants to accomplish in us. Commentator writes that Jesus' question here in verse 25 is meant to show that, quote, neither food nor clothing is an end in itself. It is the life and the body for which they provide which ultimately matter, and it is those that are the object of God's concern. And it's that last word, concern, that points us in our first step to the better way. We acknowledge that life is more than these things. But the even greater truth is that God is concerned about us and not just the things that we need. And so to show this concern and care and ability of God to provide for the most basic needs of his children, Jesus turns our attention to two examples from creation. This is a great time of year to read this passage because we're all sniffling, we've all, we're all experiencing the effects of God's uh, care and provision for one example here, and we'll see in a few moments, but uh, two examples from creation that are intended to inform what we believe about God, what we realize and, and trust about him and transform our behavior as a result of that. Let's look to the first one. Verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. Let's think about this for a few moments. Christ says, look. We can just imagine, can't we? Uh, Jesus seated there, preaching to his disciples, and a bird flies overhead, or a bird, uh, I don't know what birds do, walk, strut, um, plod, pecking along the ground. And Jesus says, look. Look at the birds. I mean, it may blow some of our minds, but there are people who, try to, try to wrap your heads around this for a second, who have dedicated their entire lives to looking at birds. I mean, more power to them. <clears throat> Me, I just Google. And so in that exercise, I found that some Buddy, not myself, uh, using taxpayer-funded research, discovered that there are some 18,000 species of birds in our world. And now we can debate, uh, we can't, I won't, uh, debate what makes a bird species distinct from each other, another. But the point is, there's a lot of birds. There's a lot of birds. And there's a lot of opportunity for us to learn from the birds. Um, using some basic elementary arithmetic, if we were to study one species of bird for one hour, just 
where it comes from, what it looks like, what its patterns of life are. Just one hour trying to learn everything we can about that bird. It would take us 12 and a half days straight of just bird study before we were finished with each species. There's a lot of them, but they don't really cross our minds that often, unless they're geese out on the yard, and then war is declared. But Christ draws our attention to them. Look at the birds. A seemingly insignificant, inconsequential part of his creation. I mean, they don't even have arms. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. There's no extraordinary effort on their part. Nothing beyond God-given instinct, a beak, and claws to aid them in their search for food. They don't do anything. But look at what he says there at the end of verse 26. We're in the middle. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. God is a gracious and generous creator who cares for and provides for even the birds. And then he asks this question. I love this question. Are you not of more value than they? I mean, think about that for a second. Here we are, worried, anxious, got to eat, I've got to drink, I've got to live, I've got to provide for myself, I've got to do this, I've got to take care of these needs for myself, for my family. And Jesus says, hey, Father feeds the birds. Aren't you more valuable than they? Aren't you worth more than they? And the answer to this question is yes, 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 we are. God provides for these minuscule, finite parts of his creation. And how much more can we, the pinnacle of his creative worth, expect him to provide for us simply because he cares for us in abundance. Yet we presume that God has forgotten us, that God is busy about the the business of the universe and surely my most basic needs have slipped his notice. Or we presume that God will forget us, that sure, I, am, I have enough for today, but what about tomorrow? We forget that God has provided for his people time after time after time. The Israelites fed by manna in the wilderness. Elijah fed by birds in the wilderness. David fed by a priest. Jesus ministered to by angels. God has not forgotten us. God is not incapable incapable or unwilling to provide for our needs. No, he cares for us. Do not be anxious. We could end the sermon right there. Christ could end his teaching right there. Don't be anxious. God cares for you. That's enough. Yet he goes on. He asks another question in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
Another way of, of saying this expression is, which of you can add a, a measure to your height? But the point of the question is that while we see that we matter more than the birds, we would be foolish to think that we depend any less on the goodness of God than they do. We cannot add to our lives. We cannot increase our permanent, lasting security through the futile exercise that is worry. It doesn't work. God isn't caring for you on the basis of the measure of your worry about yourself. God does not reward the disobedience of his command here. Do not be anxious with the blessings of his bounty. Only trust in God's gracious and kind and loving care for you works. So do you? Do I believe that God cares for me, that the Heavenly Father will feed me just as he feeds the birds? Have I reminded myself, have I reminded my family, have I reminded my children when they see me anxious about whatever, that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us? Like I said, we could end the sermon here, but Christ goes on and adds even more, informs us more about the character of our God. Look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And in much the same way that he has just done regarding the birds, Christ commands us to turn our attention to the lilies of the field. And in case you're wondering, there's 250,000 species of plants in our world, which if you were to study one species for one hour, we'd study plants for 173 and a half days. That's a lot of plants. But some of you have beautiful gardens at your home, beautiful flower beds at your home, and you know that their beauty depends on you to an extent. But you also know that when you plant a perennial, it's coming back. Guess what? That's not you. That's God. In this example from, from creation, the example of the lilies, turns our attention to the, the truth of God or about God, that he not only cares for us, but he is able and willing to provide not just the bare necessities, but to provide lavishly and bountifully for his children, just as he does for the lilies. Look at what Christ says here about them. He says they, they grow, but they neither toil nor spin. It's not due to the diligent effort of the rose that it achieves its beauty. 
It's not due to the anxious and worried construction of the oak tree that it digs its roots deep. God does that. God is the one that dresses them in beauty that rivals even that of the wealthiest king that has ever lived. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one single flower. I think we would all agree that that flowers and and the, the beauty of creation that we see around us, especially this time of year as the, the trees bloom and the um, flowers come up that signal this is, it's spring. Spring is here. We don't just see a flower one time in our lives and never think that a flower looks beautiful again. I mean, men, where would we be if we gave our wives flowers one time and that was it for all of our lives? Like, that option is gone. No, you can keep doing that again and again and again. And each time, the result is going to be, wow, what a beautiful bouquet. We're going to trim it. We're going to put it into water. We're going to put the the special food in it. We're going to keep this beauty for as long as we can. Then you throw it out and do the whole thing again. There's a beauty to God's provision for even the grass and flowers of the field. It's not hindered by time or season. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, they're referring to the grass being cut down and used for fuel, to to cook, to, to stay warm, whatever the case is. It's a beauty that that is there that God gives to his creation, knowing full well it's going to be gone. I mean, what do we do? We go out into our yard, we see the dandelions, wow, spring's here, and then we mow them down. They're a weed. They're thrown into the oven. Then this question, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? Not only does God care about the sustenance necessary for life, that which we put in, food, drink, but also that which we put on, our clothing, our shelter, our protection. And he's able and willing to meet such necessities for us. And just as he is able to give temporary beauty and generosity to his creation, he is able to do so to give to us generously, lavishly. And he is trustworthy to continue to do so. God doesn't just grow tired of gardening. Ah, the perennials won't come up this year. The roses won't be quite as beautiful this year as last. No, God is faithful to provide such lavish provision again and again and again. So, why would we doubt that he would not much more clothe us to provide for us? 
Why would our worry for shelter, clothing, protection shake our confidence that God will act on his people's behalf? Reminded of the words of the psalmist, Psalm 103. He says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. No season, no outgrowth of ours will ever surpass God's ability to lavishly provide for us, his children. But that question there at the end of verse 30, the the way that Jesus addresses it, O you of little faith. And isn't that the root of our worry and anxiety Our all-too-quick disobedience to Christ's command, do not be anxious. We don't believe it. We don't believe that God truly cares for us. We don't believe that God is really capable of quite providing for this need. And so while there's a a grace and a gentleness to, to what Christ is saying here. I think he, he is intending to prick us a little bit and to remind us that for us to disobey his command to, to be anxious when he says not to be is really for us to not believe what we should about God, to not believe that he cares for us, to not believe that he is able to provide for us. And it's with this question that Christ shows us very clearly that our sin of worry is anxiety is is when we are disobedient to the command of verse 25. And it should hardly need to be said that such a perspective of little faith or of unbelief is not for the disciple of Jesus. That That is not the better way. But in the next two verses, Jesus will not only show us that these, that the disobedience of worry and anxiety is not for the disciple of Jesus, but it's really a mark of those who have no faith whatsoever, not even the faith that saves. Look at verse 31. Jesus repeats the command again. As he did in verse, or as he says in verse 25, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What shall we put in? What shall we put on? Don't be anxious. And in verses 32 and 33, he gives us a, a great parallel where in verse 32 he's going to object to our worry. He's going to say, Don't worry because. These two reasons. And then in verse 33, he's going to really show us clearly what the better way is. Do this and this. Let's look at verse 32. Don't be anxious 
for because the Gentiles seek after all these things. Now, so far as I know, most of us in this room are ethnic Gentiles. But what Christ is, is saying here, and his audience would understand this, that he's saying the, the pagans seek after these things. The unbelieving, the unconverted, those who do not know God seek after all these things. The mark of one devoid of any faith is one whose life pattern is striving after these things. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to put on? It's all consuming of the life without faith. It's the striving after the wind that the author of Ecclesiastes tells us about. It is what is the object of their affections and their purpose. They seek after these things. So for us, by grace, disciples of Christ, to disobey and to worry about these things, food, drink, clothing, is for us to behave more like a citizen of the world than a citizen of the kingdom. May it not be so. We're reminded that the gods of pagans, whatever they might be, Roman gods, Greek gods, Muslim gods, the gods of pagans are famously fickle and capricious. You never know what they're going to do. You never know how they're going to respond. Life is lived for a pagan in fear. And recognizing this, Jesus gives the second reason in verse 32. Do not be anxious because it's what the pagans do. And do not be anxious for your heavenly father knows you need them all. You see the contrast there? Christ is assuring us that we are loved and cared for by a father who is able to provide lavishly for us and nothing escapes his notice. There is no need, no concern of ours that would lead us to worry and anxiety that the Father does not know. He is not like the pagan gods, so why would we live like pagans? It parallels the thought of verse 27 that anxiety is futile, it accomplishes nothing in itself, and here that it is redundant at best, because God the Father already knows our needs. And I love the specificity of this assurance that it is our Heavenly Father, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, who knows our needs. We're not relying on somebody to relay them to God. We're not relying on somebody to uh, make sure that this gets to God, that I need this. No, he knows in himself. And not just some of our needs, but all of them. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the sovereign God of the universe is in tune with you personally enough to know exactly what your most basic needs are and able to provide for them and to deliver you from worry and anxiety.
Look at verse 33. Very familiar verse. Russell Moore says that one of the temptations of the Sermon on the Mount is to think of it merely as just things to be crocheted on a pillow. And sometimes the familiarity with Scripture doesn't breed contempt. It just breeds malaise. We forget what it means. We forget the significance of it. We forget the power of it. And Matthew 6, verse 33 is a familiar verse to all of us. But when was the last time we thought about what this verse means and how it means that contrasted to what Christ is commanding us here? Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do this. But contrast, seek, command. First, priority. Seek what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is the alternative way, the better way than worry or anxiety. This is a command for us, his disciples, to obey. It's an alternative of obedience to the disobedience of worry, anxiety, and unbelief. To seek, to desire, to pursue as our first priority the kingdom of God. Jesus has just taught his disciples earlier in this chapter, verse 10, to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We seek the kingdom when we seek for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven, for God to be worshipped and acknowledged as sovereign, for his plan and power to be submitted to, for his name to be glorified and worshipped throughout the world. We seek his righteousness when we seek his desires and his purposes to be accomplished and realized for us and for all of humanity. God is in the business of restoring this creation, of redeeming sinners, of bringing all things and making them new. We seek for his restoration of this fallen and sin-cursed world to be completed And for the king to make all things new, full of justice, mercy, and love. This is our solution to worry and anxiety, to seek the kingdom, to seek his righteousness. This is our mission. How can we do this? Commentator offers us four, four ways. We can seek the king, God himself, Firstly, through a relationship of repentance and faith, and then through a relationship of worship and obedience. We can pray, as Jesus says, for the kingdom cause, for the salvation of the lost, for the exaltation of God's name, to submit through our obedience, to pursue justice and mercy in all areas of our lives, making our homes, our families, our marriages, our church, Committed to a way of life that reflects a submission to Christ's lordship and his plan. We will not usher in the kingdom. We're not responsible for that. But we can seek the kingdom and his righteousness today as disciples. 
J.C. Ryle writes in a book called Practical Religion, this quote, I think it's so good for, for tuning our thoughts about seeking the kingdom. He says, settle in your mind that the main cause of all the suffering you see around you is sin. Sin is the grand cause of the enormous luxury of the rich and the painful degradation of the poor, of the heartless selfishness of the highest classes and the helpless poverty of the lowest. Sin must first be cast out of the world. The hearts of all men must be renewed and sanctified. That's our mission. And it comes with a promise. Look at verse 33b, the last part, this promise. All these things will be added to you. Christ assures us that as just as our Father knows all of our needs, that for those busy for the kingdom, God will provide all things. The things we need, the things which tempt us to worry, will be graciously provided as we seek his kingdom. The final, third and final command here in verse 34. The command is the same, therefore do not be anxious. But here, if we read this at first glance, we might be tempted to see this just as a, a kind of melancholy ending to this teaching of Christ. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So while we recognize that Christ has a task for us to seek his kingdom, God's kingdom, he's not unaware that the, the trudging, trudging slog of history goes on. Tomorrow will come as God wills, and with it, another day's needs. This earth will still be broken and sin-cursed tomorrow. And with that curse of sin, with the, the needs of tomorrow, the temptation to worry, anxiety, distraction, and even despair, it looks grim. But yet, we've just read all of this that shows us that even though tomorrow will have sufficient trouble for itself, God's care for us, greater than his care for the birds, will be there tomorrow. God's capable and powerful provision, greater than his provision for the flowers of the field, will be there tomorrow. God's promise to meet all of our needs will be there tomorrow. And God's kingdom plan, the triumph and glory of his name, the securement of a people from all tongues, tribes, and nations for his name through the work of his son is still on mission tomorrow. So as we conclude, we are reminded here that Jesus' words that he spoke didn't just fade into the Galilean hills. But their truth and relevancy for the Christian life are echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament. Consider verses like these. If God is for us, who can be against us? Be anxious for nothing. 
My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Be humbled, Peter says, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. There is great gain, Paul says, in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And I could think of no better verse or verses to echo these commands of Christ than those of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Our lives, our stories may be full of those things that cause us worry and trouble, that lead us to anxiety, to worry. But may we... By the grace of God, in obedience to these commands of Christ, to not be anxious to seek, on the basis of these truths about our God, be those who reject anxiety, worry, and pursue that which is truly life, as we trust in our great God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in what he has told us to do and in what he has promised us here. God, help our hearts to be obedient and to be diligent to seek your kingdom, your righteousness, trusting that you will provide all these things for us. We pray this in Jesus' strong and precious name. Amen.